0: There's a story told of two neighbors who lived in a town, um, and they were deeply jealous of each other. Um, When one achieved some success, the other became more jealous and vice versa, and the pattern just continued on for years. And one day, a man with miraculous powers arrived in town. Um, He made a local fool so wise that he was elected mayor. Um, He helped one man win the heart of a girl he loved. And so the two neighbors, first one, then the other, went to this wise man, or this uh, miraculous man. And asked him if they could have a wish. And he said, I'll give you a wish on one condition. And that is that whatever I give you, I'll give twice as much to your neighbor. So they thought about it. Each one wondered what they ought to do. They hesitated. They wanted to make certain that the other one went first. Because that way they would get twice as much. And this went on for some time until finally one of the two agreed to go to the man. And his request... I wish to be made blind in one eye. Now, the story doesn't say whether the miracle worker made the other man blind in both eyes, but it does contain a cautionary tale about the destructive power of jealousy, and it's a theme that appears in the story that we're going to look at today. We're early in a series on the life of King David. We're looking at the years before he was crowned king, And these are complicated years, complicated because for about a period of 20 years, David has been anointed king, or he's uh, the king uh, in waiting, but there's still a king, King Saul. And for the next 20 years, those lives of these two men are intertwined. Saul first became aware of David in the story we read last week. Actually, he'd met him earlier, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But last week, we talked about the famous battle between David and Goliath. It was a suicide mission, or at least it appeared to be that way. And we talked about last week how it wasn't cleverness or skill that led David to defeat Goliath, but his trust in God, that God was trustworthy and helped him defeat the giant, the one who insulted the one true God. So the narrator tells us, again, that they had met before in a story that we skipped last week because I wanted to pair it with what we're talking about this week. So if you can indulge us just for a moment, I want to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 402. We're going to look at the last section of that chapter, and it begins this way. In verse fourteen, it says, "Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him." Now, let me just stop here to give you a reminder of something we're doing this series that's a little bit unique, and that is that we're inviting you into the sermon creating process, encouraging you to read the story in advance and send us questions, thoughts, ideas, illustrations for the week's story or the week's story. And you can send those ideas to KingDavidIdeas at gmail.com. And so later in the sermon, I've got an idea that came in through that email. But this particular question, two people stopped me this week. They skipped the email piece and basically said, what's the deal with an evil spirit coming from God? So I don't have a complete answer, but let me give you a couple of thoughts that might help you understand what's going on here. Now, one of the things we need to understand is that there's some... Uh, revelation from God that increases as you move through God's story with his people. So we understand more of God, mostly because of seeing God through the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, one who came to live among us, but in part because there are different pieces of the revelation that we have about God that are given us, some of which those in Old Testament times didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit, we're told, when we become followers of Jesus Christ. Each one of us is indwelled with the power of the Holy Spirit. But in Old Testament times, God's Spirit was given to a limited number of individuals as an empowerment for a specific purpose. So if God needed something important done, He granted an individual His Spirit. And sometimes that person was a king, because kings had spiritual responsibilities in addition to political and military. And so sometimes a king would be the one that God chose. This gift of the Holy Spirit or the spirit, as it's called in the Old Testament, is an inner experience of God's presence. It gave them wisdom and guidance and confidence and courage. And so if an individual was an agent of God, they were someone that others sort of became aware of, that they had a special enablement from God. At the beginning of Saul's reign as king, he was granted God's spirit. But what's happened here is because of his disobedience, God has withdrawn his spirit from Saul and he's granted it to David. Because typically, only one person at a time received this enablement. That's half the answer. The other half has to do with what happens when anyone, including us, turns from God. I've described this before using the metaphor of a dimmer switch. As we move toward God, the light in the room increases. When we move away, the intensity of the light goes down. So when we walk away from God, it can even disappear altogether. When we turn from God, we give Satan more opportunities to influence, tempt, even control our actions. It's the primary way that we experience judgment, at least in this life. It's not as if God actively opposes us. Instead, it's more true that we simply experience the logical consequences of what we're doing. So in Saul's case, God has withheld his spirit and in that sense, the evil spirit's from God. Anyone in that suspicion, uh, in that situation will become indecis- or indecisive, grow in suspicion, and their minds will be filled with fear and paranoia. And in Saul's case, what it appears, what manifests itself, is almost in the form of a mental illness. So in verse 14, it says, Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting him. Now, I want to be careful here uh, because I don't believe that mental illness is something that God allows for us or chooses to uh, curse us with when we choose to disobey. And I also don't think that all those who experience some sort of mental illness have disobeyed. There's not a direct cause and effect, but there can be a relationship. Again, I want to be careful. But what we know here is that Saul's troubles have both a spiritual and psychological, are spiritual and psychological, that his suspicious thoughts and his violent impulses have spiritual roots. At least that's what we're told in this case. Whatever Saul's experiencing, it's not arbitrary. It has its roots in his bullheaded disobedience, and as a consequence, God has withheld the protection that was once there and allowed an evil spirit to torment him. Now, when this happens, one of his aides makes a suggestion. In verse 16, it says, Let our Lord command his servant here to search for someone who can pay, play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes up on you, And you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendant, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine looking, and the Lord is with him. And Saul sent the messenger to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who's with the sheep. So Jesse sent his son David to Saul. And what he's prescribing here is really a form of music therapy. And this other advisor knows just the guy, and so Saul asks them to send for David. Verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then the relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. And this is the way that their relationship initially begins, and probably Saul saw him more as someone who provided a service and didn't get to know him personally. But David is there to do what he can to help the king. But he's not always in the palace, it appears. Sometimes he's back home taking care of the sheep. And it's from there, taking care of the sheep, that he went into this battle against Goliath, this famous battle. And it's immediately after that battle that we pick the story back up in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So, you'd like to, turn to 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. It's on page 406. And here's how this part of the story begins. It says, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officials as well. Now, remember, David has defeated Goliath, and he's given a military commission and experiences some initial success. Now, that's good, right? Except that things soon get complicated. Verse 6 says this, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. And they, and they danced and they sang. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now there's a debate among scholars whether the uh, lyrics here um, that are the lyrics of a victory song are intentionally mocking King Saul. Most scholars actually aren't sure that that's the case here. Hebrew poetry often uses parallel lines that increase or intensify the effect that they're looking for. So the lyrics simply may just be talking about a large number of Philistines who have been defeated in battle, and Saul and David are the main ones who've been leading the troops, and so they're just talking about a lot of folks. It may be an unintentional slight. But whether it's intentional or not, is really irrelevant because what's relevant here is Saul's reaction. That's what matters. Here's what Saul does. Verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands. He thought, but me only with thousands. What more um, can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, if you think about it, Saul could have laughed the whole thing off. Yeah, David had a hot hand that day, and I didn't. In the end, it didn't matter. The Philistines were defeated, and the threat was erased. But that's not how Saul took it. Instead, he chose to see David as a threat. And the key line here is, what more can he get but the kingdom, which shows where Saul's heart is? His only concern here is to hold on to power. When he sees the reaction of the crowd, there are seeds of insecurity... And jealousy that begin to grow in Saul's heart. And these seeds grow, producing, as we'll see in a moment, tragic consequences. Saul hated David because David was good. He hated David because he made Saul look bad. As David's popularity grows, everything he touches seems to turn to gold. And so Saul's jealousy grows and grows and grows. And the more it grows, the angrier he gets. So he desperately wants David to fail. So he hatches a, a series of carefully... Crafted assassination plots. The first happened the next day. It says, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcibly upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house, and while David was playing the lyre as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So he gets angry, throws a spear at David. David's quick enough to drop, jump out of the way. Then comes the second attempt. Verses 12 and 13, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he, went to De- he sent David away from him and gave him a command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaign. Now, it may not be clear here, but if you see what's happening is Saul is attempting to put David in harm's way. He sends him regularly into battle, hoping that his youth and inexperience... Remember, David is probably around 18 years old at this point. He's hoping that his youth and inexperience will get him into trouble. But the strategy backfires. In verse 14, it says, In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When the Lord saw how successful he was, he was af- or when saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaign. So even though David's a, just a teenager, he has this unbroken string of success. Now, something I mentioned last week, I want to mention again this week, and that is that the narrator is attempting to show us that it's not that David is so skillful. He probably was not natural at this, but it's instead because God's with him. And that makes Saul even more angry because God's with David, not with Saul, and because he's successful in battle, it's simply because the Lord's with him. And then it says, All Israel and Judah loved David. So the people are drawn to David as a military leader, they willingly follow him in the battle. Now, one of the other things the narrator wants us to understand is that David is not manipulating things. He's not trying to undermine Saul. He's simply trying to do his job faithfully. And what happens is Saul continues to try to minimize David's influence. He tries to put him in harm's way, even to get rid of him. But every curse that he tries turns into a blessing because because God is with David. So then Saul hatches yet another plot, two plots, as it turns out, that use his daughters as bait. And rather than read these, let me, with the first one, just summarize by saying that Saul offered David his oldest daughter in marriage if he would go fight the Philistines in a battle that apparently needed to be taken care of. Again, Saul's intention here is to put David's life in jeopardy, but it fails. David is successful. Saul reneges on the promise and gives his oldest daughter to another man. Then Saul hears that his younger daughter, Michael has fallen in love with David. And the prerequisite in those days was that if you were going to marry someone, that the, the family of the bride paid a bride pi- price to the groom's family in order to be able to, for, to have um, his hand in marriage. Now, as a father of two daughters, I'm really hoping that maybe this custom will be revived, although I don't know my daughters are particularly keen on being auctioned off to the highest bidder. But that's the way they did this. David knew because he came from a relatively modest, even poor family, that it was impossible for him to come up with the kind of price that would have gotten a king's daughter. Verse 23, he says, Don't you think, uh, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son in law? I'm only a poor man and a little known. Well, with nothing to offer Saul, uh, David's about to take himself out of the running. He had no idea that what he did by saying this was give Saul a huge opening. Saul decided to send him into battle against the Philistines. Again, this is cold-blooded murder by marriage. Now, I'm not going to read this particular section. You're welcome to. We have kids in the room. Probably be better if I skipped it from now. What, David, what, what happens here is a little creepy, although it made sense at the time. And if you want to know how it makes sense, uh, you can email me at KingDavidIdeas.com and I will let you know. But let me just say, if you think the Old Testament is boring, think again. Go ahead and read this later today on your own. But what Saul does is set an outrageous bride price. But David completes the task in less time with twice the required price. And because his daughter, Michael, loves David, Saul meets his end of the bargain and the marriage takes place. In the end, the narrator summarizes the situation this way. says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became more afraid of him and remained his enemy for the rest of his days. So as this chapter ends, Saul's an isolated man. He's desperate to hold on to power. Jealousy's driving him to extreme actions. But the momentum is shifting toward David. And everyone knows, even Saul knows that. Now, it'd be easy to end here, be critical of Saul, praise David for his willingness to work uh, faithfully for a horrible boss, uh, except for one thing, and that is this whole undercurrent, this theme of jealousy is something that is a temptation for us as well. Now, we don't often talk about jealousy, it's uh, certainly one of the sins listed in the Bible, but if we were to list out our own list of things we struggle with, jealousy would probably be way down the list because we don't really think about it. Although, if you do begin to reflect, you realize that seldom is, is jealousy very far away from us. One of the most challenging tests in life is to see a sibling or a friend or a subordinate become more successful than we are. And we're obsessed as a culture with comparisons. Comparisons lead quickly to jealousy. Now, it might be professional jealousy. Perhaps you were once the golden child at work, and then suddenly there's someone new, younger, um, and turns out just to have a little bit more talent than you do. Um, It might be economic jealousy. A college friend or a neighbor ends up with a bigger piece of the pie than you have. Um, They have a newly remodeled kitchen or some vacation plans that you'd really love to have. We can be jealous of people for their gifts, for their opportunities, especially when it comes at our expense. And if something is important to us, then we're even more vulnerable to the sin of jealousy. And I have to confess that I am occasionally have a bit, maybe even more than a bit, of professional jealousy. Um, One time a family left City Church, and uh, they went to another church, and we ran into them a year or so later, and uh, my wife asked them where they went to church. I really didn't want to know. Um, But they told us, and then they raved and raved, And raved, and raved about the pastor. Uh, For a moment, and probably, let me say, just more than a moment, I wanted something bad to happen to him. Or how about something that happens here almost every month? Uh, We have a great teaching team of people here at City Church. Amy teaches about once a month, and periodically, Devin or Kara or Peter will teach, and they do a great job. So when someone tells me, boy, that was a great sermon that XYZ uh, preached this week, it's hard for me mentally not to tick back and think, have they ever complimented me on one of my sermons? Um, It would be easy for me to take offense, even to allow jealousy to take roots, rather than to celebrate the success of others, even though I do want to remind everyone that I did hire these people. (laughs) In my experience, it's easier to celebrate the success of someone who does something we have you know, really don't have any ability or even know how to do. So I don't have a hard time um, celebrating Kara's architectural skills and helping us renovate this building, or Lee Colvin's skills as a graphic designer, or Devin's ability to weave together the arts and music um, in our worship experiences, or Bethany's gift at sharing Jesus with children, or especially Peter's gift with teenagers. Some of you may know that's just not something I am good at. But it's much more difficult if the task is something central to who we think we are. So how do you know if jealousy is creeping into your heart? Well, it's when you get irritated when an acquaintance gets a big promotion, or you feel depressed when someone you know well succeeds, or you feel the temptation to belittle the accomplishments, talents, or even the appearance of someone else. Or you occasionally badmouth someone uh, that you may kind of feel inferior to. Or you're secretly pleased when someone experiences a setback. Or if you really want something, whether it's a promotion or to get married, you can't get happy when someone else, a friend, gets promoted or engaged and all you can think about is, it should have been me. Jealousy is a feeling of unhappiness, even resentment with the things that others have, with the possessions and personal qualities or success. And jealousy is often combined with the desire to see some kind of ill fortune done to others. Instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn, we weep when others rejoice and rejoice when they weep. So jealousy says if I'm going to be miserable, then they ought at least be miserable as well. So if you still feel like you're doing okay, just ask another question, though, and that is how easy do you find it to celebrate the achievements of others, the accomplishments of others? You know, when your uh, freshman roommate... um, Or the guy you used to work for in the office or who used to report to you in the office is successful. Are you inspired by their success, no matter whether they're younger or less qualified than you? Or are you upset? So it's hard. It's hard not to feel some jealousy at the talent, success, or good fortune of others. It's easy to feel sad, even mad, when someone close to us succeeds. So in that way, it's natural to feel some perverse delight at the misfortune of others. That's the reason I think we so pay so much attention to celebrity train wrecks. It's why there's a whole industry devoted to documenting the humiliation of this star or that star, a musician or politician or athlete. But I think, interestingly, we're seldom jealous of celebrities in the same way we are of our peers. Those vastly more talented or successful, us, you know, we can kind of dismiss that. You know, Mark Zuckerberg or Kevin Durant or Bono But it's finding out that your brother-in-law makes $25,000 more than you. That's when it really hits, rubber hits the road. Jealousy often surfaces when we have something that's threatened, when we worry that someone will take what we have. And that was certainly true in Saul's jealousy of David. So what are we supposed to do with jealousy? Let me offer you a few suggestions. First, let's call a spade a spade and admit when we're feeling jealous. If you can't rejoice when a friend succeeds, then own up to it. Tell God about it, confess it, and ask him to help you deal with it. Secondly, do what you can to stop making comparisons. We've got to stop this idea that we've got to, in everything, create a hierarchy. That's not the way God intended for us to live. In fact, if you get close to some of the people you're jealous of, you may find that their lives are not as wonderful as you think. This spring, I was with a friend that I don't see often. Years ago, um, we interviewed for the same job. It was a big deal, something both of us wanted. There were over 100 people who applied for the position. Um, Then they narrowed it down to 12, then 5, then 2, and the two of us were the two finalists for the position, and he got the job. Now, last year, uh, due to some health issues, he retired from that position, and he he did extremely well in the role. Um, In many ways, all that time, I was a little jealous of him, But I also know that he was the person that God really wanted in that role. He did a great job. We talked a few weeks, a few months ago, about his career, about his time in this organization. And he shared with me something that um, I was a little surprised at. And that was that while I had some professional jealousy, he had a little bit of jealousy of me as well, because there have been some struggles in his home, things that I've not experienced. And so he confessed, we sort of realized that each of us had in different ways been jealous of one another for different reasons. What this means, I think, in part, is that we need to learn to celebrate the gifts and opportunities that others have. We need to be able to say, I'm so happy for you, without gritting our teeth, to see their victories as our victories, to cheer them on when they get a promotion, to celebrate good news, and to not let jealousy rob you of that celebra- of sharing in the celebration. So here's something someone sent me this week at KingDavidIdeas.gmail.com. So here's what she said. She said, I've thought about the times in my life when I've experienced jealousy. And in recent years, whenever i felt a twinge of jealousy, I've tried to remind myself. And then she quotes from Psalm 84. For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. And she writes, this reminds me that if God did not give me a particular blessing, then it was not meant for me to have it, or at least not in that particular place and time. It also reminds me that God gives different blessings to different people, and I'm not the one who should receive all of the blessings that God has to offer. She's right. Let's learn to rejoice when others rejoice. And then the last suggestion is, find your contentment and significance in God. At the core, jealousy is an expression of dissatisfaction with God, with the gifts qualities and success that he's given us. And anger at what he has, by contrast, um, when he chooses to give it to others. Ultimately, it reveals that we don't trust God. We don't believe that he wants the best for us. We think we know better than him, and it makes us mad. The only way to really break this pattern is to focus on Jesus, to understand and embrace the extravagant, sacrificial, and unconditional love of God. John put it this way in 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's only when we see that God's love for us that we can understand that life's not a zero-sum game. God loves us equally. He loves us extravagantly. When we see how much He loves us, how richly He's blessed us, and how much He wants to give each one of us, we can forget this whole idea of comparison. Only then can we quit making life a competition and find our identity, not in our achievements, but in Jesus Christ. Then we can be content, even when a college roommate goes on to become the CEO of General Mills, or your younger sister writes a best-selling novel, or your chem lab partner wins the Nobel Prize. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful, grateful to you for what you have done for us. But sometimes we get jealous, get jealous of others. Help us to admit when we're feeling jealous, admit that these feelings are there so they can be named and we can begin to give them over to you. Help us learn to stop making comparisons, to learn to celebrate the gifts and achievements and success of others, and to find contentment ultimately in what we have been given through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. Amen.